Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. And for those of you who've been visiting over the last couple of weeks, my name is Justin. I am one of the elders here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. I've uh, been out caring for my mother, and I just want to say thank you to all of you for your encouragement and for your prayers and your support. Uh, my mother is doing well. I, I would thank Jeff, but Jeff's not here, so I thanked him soundly at our elders' meeting. Um, I got a phone call Saturday three weeks ago and found out that my mother had a medical emergency, and I texted the elders while I was on the road, which, by the way, kids, you should not do that. Um, and Jeff said, I got it, I'm going to preach, and Dan said, I'll do this, and Mark said, I'll do this, and they just gave me the freedom to go and be with my mother and care for her and love her and serve her, and, and so I thank my elders tremendously. They, I don't deserve them. We don't deserve them. They are a blessing and a gift to me and to us as a church, but I will say this, um, being that it was a Saturday, I, this message that I'm going to preach today was ready to go. Um, but obviously God didn't want you to hear it then, he wanted you to hear it today. So I'm excited to be back and be with you and to preach God's word to you. So if that's given you enough time to find 1 Timothy in your copy of God's word, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5, and this is a passage which we started to study four weeks ago. We're going to come back to it and we're going to hone in on a few things. We looked at more of the negative side of this passage, the, the command for Timothy to confront false teachers. Today, we're going to see the positive side, what, what Timothy is to establish over and against what the false teachers are seeking to establish for the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3, here's what we read. Paul writes to Timothy saying, As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it any further? Father, I do thank you for your Word, and I thank you for the gathering of your people for the purpose of singing your Word and hearing your Word read over us and hearing your Word explained. And now, through the proclamation of your Word, Father, let us be a people who sit beneath the teaching of the Word and soak in the truth of it. Let it confront us where we need to be confronted and let it comfort us where we need to be comforted. But let, us, let it give us guidance and direction and clarity about what you have called us to be and to do as a church. So Father, I pray that you would have your way with us and accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word. Use me for that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most important lessons to be learned in the construction of anything, especially a home is the necessity of a good foundation. Right? We all know this to be true at some level. A good foundation supports the structure. It, it resists movement and change. That is, unless you live in Texas, and it's going to move anyway. But a good foundation is key. And a good foundation in a home allows a family to live in peace and stability. 
But as we know, a bad foundation can tear a family or a house apart. And this principle of starting with foundations is not just true of houses, it's also true of God's church as well. When the church builds its foundation on human ideas, when the church builds its foundation on market trends, or when the church builds its foundation on completely false teaching, it fails to be a true church that is working to accomplish the plan of God. The only true foundation for the church of God is one built upon God's word and held together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is helping Timothy to understand. There's this group of people who have come in and they're trying to upend that biblical foundation, that solid sound doctrine foundation. They're trying to put something else in its place. And Timothy is being instructed by Paul, reminded by Paul that your job is to confront that and to reestablish the truth. Timothy is being instructed to build the church, to order the church upon two things, the proper ordering of God's household and the transformation of God's people. Now, a few weeks ago, we learned about the false teaching. The false teaching threatens to lead God's people astray. It, 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 alters, uh, it offers an alternate foundation that is not sufficient. And this morning, we're going to look at that positive side to learn how sound doctrine provides the only proper foundation for God's house. And we're going to start by looking back at verse 4. Let's look at the ordering of God's household. And I want you to look at one particular phrase, uh, and it's this phrase that comes. It's the contrast of what the false teachers are doing. The false teachers are focusing in on myths and genealogies. These things promote speculations rather than, and you could add that that verb to it, they, they promote this rather than promoting what they should, which is the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now that's what Timothy is supposed to be doing. He is supposed to be establishing the church in such a way that they are taking advantage of the stewardship of God. They are rightly administering the stewardship from God that is by faith. And we learned about this a couple of weeks ago. He's going to confront the false teachers, and he's going to establish this. But there's something in this phrase that is really helpful for us. When we think about our role within the life of the church today, and what, what way we can participate in the proper ordering of God's household. So the phrase, the, the Greek phrase, is oikonomia theou. And the ESV translates this phrase as the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, stewardship is a word we use every now and then. There's a computer going on over here. Every now and then we use that word stewardship. Generally, we talk about being a good steward of our finances. God has blessed us with certain things, and he has given us the calling or command to be a good steward of those things, to rightly administer those things, to manage those things well. And that's generally the idea of what a steward does. A steward is someone who's been given a job or a task or a responsibility, and they are to manage or oversee that task or that responsibility in order to please their master. And in the context, we would interpret this to mean that these false teachers in the church are teaching and acting in a way that is contrary to a proper stewardship, and Timothy is to go back and he is to reestablish what a proper stewardship or leadership in the church is supposed to look like. 
Now, that, that seems on its face to be very simple, but what is it about this phrase that I want us to see? Well, when we look more deeply at this phrase, the, especially in the original language of the New Testament, in the Greek, we see that there's, there are layers that we can consider here. For instance, the Greek term oikonomia is a compound word that includes two terms, oikos, which means house or household, and namas, which is the way we refer to law or rules. So if you wanted to just, in a general, basic way, interpret this phrase, it's talking about the rules of the house, specifically the rules of the house of God. And this implies two things in context. It, it implies that, that God has a set of rules in mind. God has a specific set of rules in mind for how his church is to believe and how his church is to behave. And it also indicates that these false teachers have abandoned those rules. And that's what this letter is all about. Paul is urging Timothy, confront these men who have abandoned the revealed foundation for the church and at the same time, reestablish those rules that govern and guide the church. So we're talking about house rules here. And when I think about house rules, I, I, my mind just goes back to my childhood. I grew up in a traditional southern home. And in a traditional southern home, there are certain rules that go along with that. For instance, when, when I addressed my father or my mother, it was expected at all times that I would use the phrase, yes, sir, or no, sir, or yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am. Anybody else identify with that? You've been there? You've done that? Okay. Now, if I was addressing another adult, didn't matter. If I was addressing an adult, a, a, position, a person in a position of authority over me, that was the proper way to address them. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. No, ma'am. This was not optional for me. This was absolutely expected. And there were other house rules. Like when, when I was growing up, we ate most of our evening meals at the dinner table. Some of you still do that. I recommend that you do that. But we would pray over the meal. We weren't allowed to talk with food in our mouth. And when we did, our mother would call us out and instruct us on how we were supposed to chew our food, swallow our food, and then say what we had to say. And when I was finished with my dinner, I was not just allowed to jump up off the table and go run outside and play games. I had to ask my mother, mother, may I be excused? Or my father, may I be excused? Anybody else identify with that? Or is it just me? Okay, a few of you, you understand the house rules. I grew up thinking that this was perfectly normal until I went to my friend's house and I realized that they did things a little bit differently. And upon discovering this, being a little rebellious, sinful kid as I was, I decided to challenge my parents' expectations. And as you might expect, it did not go well with me when I did that. And I was brought back into line quite quickly. I learned that the house rules that my parents gave to me, they were not optional in any case, they were always to be followed whether mom and dad were there or not. Wherever I went, my parents expected that I would follow the house rules that they had taught me. And Southern families are not the only families that have such household rules. Every culture, every family has something similar. And this pattern of managing the home, ordering the home, structuring the home, this was very common in Jesus' day as well. In fact, throughout Scripture, you'll see a term manager or household manager or, or just the word steward referring to a person who has a responsibility within the house. The, the word steward or household manager is oikonomos, 
So it's, it's a different form of that same word we looked at earlier. And these were servants, or they were hired workers who were tasked with managing the affairs of the home. Their role was to teach and uphold the rules of the household of the parents, right? That's what they were supposed to do. And Paul is taking that term and he's dragging it into this conversation with Timothy and he's saying, look, we have a responsibility. We are stewards. We are household managers over the household of God. And God has given us specific rules and instructions and we aren't supposed to deviate from those things. And when the church begins to deviate from those things, our role as shepherds is to bring them back into alignment with that truth proper ordering of God's household. And that includes, in Timothy's case, and in ours as well, the confronting of false teachers who are trying to upend those rules. Does that make sense? That is key to our understanding of this entire letter. Because that is what Timothy is tasked to do. But it's also important for us to know this as well. Because guess what? We're still part of the household of God. And guess what? We still have those house rules and ordering of the way God calls on us to believe and to behave as his people. We are called to be salt and light in the culture in a specific way, in in specific ways. And this whole book is really lining our hearts and our minds and our church back up with God's house rules. And there are plenty of teachers that want to chip away at the foundation that God has laid in his word. As a church... We need to understand that we are a family. We are part of the household of God. And our goal is to be faithfully managed by the Word of God rather than human traditions, market trends, our own emotions, or even worldly ideas. And here's another thing. When we leave this gathering... We don't leave the house rules at home, just like I wasn't allowed to leave my house rules at home and go do whatever I wanted when I left. When we leave this gathering, we take the house rules with us. We don't abandon our faith in Christ and the Word of God at the door. We take the gospel, we take the house rules with us. Our task as the people of God is to affirm and follow and promote the stewardship from God that is by faith, the proper ordering of the household of God. That is the right response of faith. But if we're honest, this is often a difficult task. And I want to address two ways that I think we particularly struggle with this, to take the house rules of God with us, or even to just affirm these things. And the first is personal. Fundamentally, as believers in Christ, we know at some level that that this is the way the, the Christian life is supposed to work. God communicates his truth to us and we are to faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully walk in line with that truth. We understand that. But it becomes really easy in our culture to compartmentalize our lives. We slip into character on Sunday, but when we go back to work, we tend to hide our faith. We fail to love our neighbors and others after the manner of Christ. We fall short. And our culture makes it really easy for us to do this. Our culture promotes hypocrisy for religious people. You know this? It's against us in this regard. And so are our hearts. But the house rules still apply no matter where we go. Our faith in Christ is the most important thing about us. The truth of God's word doesn't stop being true just because we cross the threshold, just because society doesn't like it. 
your DEI department, your diversity, equity, and inclusion department at work would, would prefer that you leave your faith at home, but God calls us to do otherwise. Christ calls us to be salt and light within the culture, not just while gathered as a church. So how are you living with God's gospel and his word as the directing influence of your life during the week? Are you actively setting your mind on God's truth each day and allowing that truth to influence your relationships and your speech and your actions? Are you taking the house rules with you out into the world? And not only do we struggle with this personally, but I think we also struggle with this, or we see struggles in this way when it comes to the corporate body of Christ. Just like in Timothy's day, there are people in the church today that want to leave the scriptures behind so that they can promote new house rules. There is this sinful impulse to water down the gospel message. There is this sinful desire to promote unfaithful and unqualified leaders. That's not a new thing that's been going on. It's still happening today. There is a desire to shift the aim of the church's ministry away from evangelism and discipleship to something that resembles growth and entertainment. Whatever we have to do to get more people in the door, we'll do. Even if that means we don't talk about this. Even if that means we'll take a different approach to things that the Scriptures clearly call sin. This is happening. And nothing seems to be more pressing to this cultural moment than the influence of the sexual revolution. One of the loudest collective voices in our culture is the one that is arguing for the enthusiastic acceptance and celebration of every practice on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. More and more we see churches and church leaders abandoning the clear teaching of Scripture to embrace the sexual revolution. Here's a couple of quotes, one from Ligonier. The sexual revolution that the Christian church in the West now faces is a set of moral challenges that exceeds anything it has experienced in the past. This is a revolution of ideas, and these ideas are transforming the entire moral structure of meaning and life. Al Mohler, in a book that he wrote years ago about this very issue, he says, the moral revolution is now so complete that those who will not join are understood to be deficient, intolerant, and harmful to society. What was previously understood to be immoral is now celebrated as a moral good. The church's historic teaching on sexuality in general and homosexuality in specific, which was shared by the vast majority of the culture until very recently, it now is seen as a relic of the past and even a repressive force that must be eradicated. And this has caused many churches and many church leaders to abandon biblical teaching and to embrace this revolution. The push for the normalization of every practice on that spectrum has come upon us very fast. It has reshaped our culture and it is reshaping, well, it's infiltrating the church. To embrace biblical sexuality, what the Bible teaches clearly about a proper understanding of godly sexuality, to embrace that is to put oneself at odds with our culture. And this has just caused so many people to just abandon the Bible on this issue. 
Oh, and by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but if you just read down to the very next section in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is going to address these issues in the very next section. It's not just a a contemporary issue. It was an issue for Paul and Timothy in that day, in the first century. And Paul makes very clear that, that God's law is still good and it still applies and violating the law of God is the very essence of sin. This is nothing new. So here's the point. God has given us clear direction for how Christians are to believe and how we are to live. The good news of Christ, specifically the good news, makes it abundantly clear that we are sinners in need of a Savior and there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which men can be saved, save the name of Jesus Christ. No man nor woman can save themselves. It is only by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross that anyone can be saved from sin and bound for heaven in the end. That's the gospel reality. But there's a second part to this. God has also made clear how we are to order the house. And our calling is to make disciples of Christ and to build our ministry upon the Word, not the whims of man, nor the wind of new culturally accepted orthodoxies. All of this requires... That we be a people who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of what we read in verse 5. So the first point is this. There is a proper ordering of the household of God. That's what we're after. But let's look at the second part. We've considered the proper ordering of God's household. Now let's consider the transformation of God's people. Because a proper ordering relies upon this. Verse 5 says this. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, we touched on this a few weeks ago, but we just skimmed the surface. I want to go a little bit deeper with it today. Because all of these things, these things that function in our life to help produce the kind of love for God and love for one another that that true religion aims to produce, all of these things come as a result of a transformed life. A life that's been transformed by faith in Christ. A life that has been transformed by the gospel. This verse reminds us that the goal of the Christian ministry is to produce the fruit of love. True religion in the heart aims to produce in us a love for God and a love for others. A love for our neighbors, a love for our brothers and sisters. Jesus made this very clear. This is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is really close and just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what true religion aims to produce, this kind of love. John tells us that love fulfills the law. And he calls for us to understand how the gospel produces this love in us. That's one of its primary goals. Love for God and a love for others. And this love is a sacrificial love. And it's a love that brings us together as a family. It forges a commitment between us. It's a a kind of commitment that can withstand the harshest criticism. It's the kind of loving commitment that can help us to bear up under the most bitter persecution. And we know this because we read the New Testament and that's what we see happening. Sin divides, but true religion in the heart that that comes as a result of the gospel, true religion in the heart, it brings peace 
because it promotes love. That's the goal of gospel ministry, to bring peace between God and man. Where we were once separated from God because of our sin, Jesus Christ has come to break down that dividing wall of hostility. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the penalty for our sin. He paid its price. That's where our hope lies. Not that we pay the price for our sin, but that he paid the price for our sin. Our sin was imputed to him, and he died bearing its weight so that his righteousness can be imputed to those who believe. So we stand as those who've had our sins paid for by Christ and as those who've had our righteousness granted to us by Christ. He removed the barrier. He saves us. Our salvation is the product of His work, not our own. And when this grabs a hold of us, it produces in us a profound love for God, for who He is and what He has done. We can say along with John, for God so loved the world, That he gave. That's an amazing thing. And our love is spurred on because of that. But the gospel doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with fostering a love between us and the God who saved us. It also works to give us a love for one another. It brings peace between men. Our faith unites us to one another because it reveals that deep down we're all the same. Yeah, I know we may come from different backgrounds, and yeah, we may have, be in different you know, socioeconomic strata, and yeah, we may have different levels of education, but at the core of who we are, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Every single one of us. The gospel cuts us down to our knees. And when we look around, we realize we're all on our knees before Christ. No one gets uh, you know, to come to the front of the class. We're all in the same place. And when the gospel shows us this, it helps us to look across the aisle. It helps us to look across the room and realize that we are brothers and sisters. We're all beggars. We're all beggars before the Lord. But it also helps us to understand that we're no longer rivals competing for attention. We're no longer enemies fighting over land or money or status or preferences. We're lost and dying sinners clinging together to the saving grace of God. And when our hearts and our minds are fixed on this gospel truth and being nourished by it as a church, then our unity is strengthened by love. That's the aim of gospel, to produce that kind of humble, grace-filled love. And when our hearts are properly soaked in the grace of God, there is no disagreement that can't be overcome. There is no sin that can't be forgiven. There is no disunity that can't be healed and no hurt that can't be made right. The gospel mends broken hearts. It mends broken relationships. It mends broken homes. And it draws us together in profound unity. Now, the contrast is the corruption of the false teachers. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that false teachers produce envy and dissension, and slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False gospels feed that sinful pattern of division, but the true gospel produces humility and unity in love. You can see the difference, the contrast between these two things. Love is the active response to God's grace. It is also the product of authentic conversion to Christ. 
And this genuine love flows from three internal human faculties that are the result, that result from our conversion, a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. So let's take a minute and talk about those. Number one, a pure heart. A pure heart. The Bible has much to say about the heart. The Bible teaches us that the heart is referred to as the the metaphorical locus of human personality and emotion and will. The heart is the fulcrum of our feeling and our faith. And it's from the heart that our true inner self is revealed because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? So the heart is this essential component to help us understand what true faith looks like. The heart reveals our true self, and the goal of true religion is for us to possess a pure heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And guess what? The Bible does tell us that God has looked on the heart of man and he has given his indictment against it. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, God looked on the heart of fallen man and he saw that every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually. We know this. We need to have pure hearts But the Bible points out that our hearts are anything but pure. And then the Bible helps us to understand throughout its pages that though our our most desperate need is to have new hearts, we can't change our hearts. The leopard can't change its spots and we can't change our hearts. That's God's work. We have hearts filled with sin and pride and selfishness and we need new hearts. And King David knew this quite well, maybe better than we do. When David had sinned against God, he he expressed the sinful condition of his heart, and he knew that he was powerless to give himself a new heart. And so what did David do? He cried out to God and he prayed this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He understood the problem and he understood the solution was outside of himself. Friend, do you see that? Do you know that about yourself? That the heart of man is desperately wicked? Who can know it? That deep down we are sinners and that sin has corrupted us to the very core of our being, to our very hearts, and we are powerless to change our own hearts, but in God's promises, He said, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to come and I'm going to take out that heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. And this is a picture of the conversion that happens when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and makes us new. A pure heart is the result of this converting power of the Spirit of God in us. The only way for us to have pure hearts is for God to cleanse our hearts. And when He does, the result is that we will turn from our sins and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ That's what God does in our conversion. And in our conversion to Christ, God gives us this new heart and he calls us to exercise our new hearts by loving him and loving one another. By overlooking petty grievances. By bearing with one another. By forgiving one another. By serving one another. By not elevating our preferences over everything else. Unity within the body doesn't come because we are all in agreement with everything across the board. You know that can't happen. Unity comes when we are actively committed to the thing that unifies us above everything else, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Unity comes when our hearts 
are collectively fixed upon the grace of God and we allow the rule of God's love to bind us together. That's what a pure heart is. It's a, it's a gift of God's grace, but it's also something that we have to exercise and walk in so that we can rightly order our lives and we can rightly love one another. But that's not all that he says is the flows out of this. Also, a clear conscience. Now, the conscience is the organ of decision that facilitates the process of our behavior. The conscience is that God-given internal sense of right and wrong. And the Bible tells us that our conscience can either be skewed in the direction of truth or it can be diverted into this direction of falsehood. And in the case of unbelievers, the conscience can be seared by the deceitfulness of sin. That's 1 Timothy 4.2. Or it can remain corrupted and defiled, according to Titus 1.15. And that's generally referring to the conscience of unbelievers. Yes, unbelievers have a conscience, but their conscience is skewed in the direction of selfishness and pride and sin. But a conscience that's been renewed by faith in Christ is referred to as a good conscience. In conversion, our conscience is kind of rebooted, so to speak. And it, and it becomes sensitive to sin. It becomes sensitive to the things of God. It becomes sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And a good conscience is, is first renewed by the gospel and then is continually being recalibrated by the word of God. A good conscience rightly embraces God's truth and seeks to produce the fruit of love. A gospel-fueled conscience won't allow us to hold a grudge against a brother, for instance. But it presses on us to convict us of our need to remove the plank from our own eyes so that we can help our brother or sister with the speck that they're dealing with. This is what the Spirit of God does in forming and shaping and recalibrating our conscience. And the more you kick against that, the more you're going to salve your conscience in the wrong direction. You're going to comfort yourself with a, a wrongly directed conscience. Let the Word of God guide your conscience. Let the humility of Christ guide your conscience. False teaching corrupts the conscience. And it produces arrogance and pride and division, but a good conscience produces sensitivity to sin, which leads to true repentance. It produces humility born of the gospel, and it results in a renewed love for both God and man. This is what we're after. But that's not it. It's not just the heart and not just the conscience, but it's also a sincere faith, he tells us. Now that word sincere, I think I've mentioned it here before. I know I've taught on this in other venues. The, the word sincere comes from two Latin words, sinna, sera, and that phrase means without wax. And that's a weird thing. What are you talking about, without wax? Well, there's a, there's a backstory to this term. In the ancient Near Eastern world, dishonest merchants would, you know, they, were, they would form a, a clay pot and they would notice a crack in that clay pot, and they didn't want to scrap it and start over, because once you fired the, the pot, it's over, it's there, it's done. No, they would, they would put wax in the cracks, and then they would seal it over so nobody could tell, and then they would sell their defective pot as though it was just fine. And only later would the buyer discover that it was a problem because they put some boiling water in the pot and then all of a sudden the wax would melt and the boiling water would come out and they realized they completely wasted their money, but they had been duped because this person was dishonest. And so honest dealers would stamp on their pots Sinna Sarah without wax. In other words, I'm not hiding anything here. There's no hypocrisy here. This is pure, this is right, and this is good. 
And the word that Paul is using here, it actually means, in the Greek, it means without hypocrisy. That's how we're to love one another. That's what our faith is to be described as, without hypocrisy, without wax. Sincere. Paul is saying that the faith that produces love is a sincere faith. Not a phony faith, not a hypocritical faith. It's not that faith that comes in the doors and puts on a mask on Sunday and then goes out and lives a completely unbelieving lifestyle the rest of the week. That's not what he's after. A genuine and sincere faith is is a true trust in Christ that fuels the life of a believer. It fuels our love. It fuels our obedience. So when we put all these three things together, we learn that True and faithful household of God is filled with men and women who have been converted to Christ. It's a household that has been made alive by God's powers, being shaped by God's gospel, and His house rules are, are, are on display in our fellowship. And those rules stem from a heart that's been changed, a conscience that's being recalibrated day in and day out, and a faith that is sincere to produce love. That's what we're after. And that's what the false teachers are trying to undermine. So, what do we do with all this? We've seen a proper ordering of God's house and how false teachers today are trying to chip away at that. We've seen that all of this relies on the true transformation of the people of God. So let me ask a few questions to try to drive some of these things home. Question number one. How are you, personally, as an individual, how are you doing your part in this church to teach and uphold the gospel and God's word? How are you consuming and then distributing sound doctrine? Not your own ideas, not your own preferences, not the latest thing that's happening at First Baptist, whatever. But how are you consuming and then distributing sound doctrine so that you are displaying love and the church is greater, unified by your presence and your obedience? How are you training yourself and your children in the truth so that love is the happy byproduct of your labor? Are you harboring a contentious spirit that leads you to complain about every decision where your preferences aren't being met? Or are you embracing the spirit of unity that aims to love the brethren? You see, all of us make up this family of God, this faith family that we call Cornerstone. And we all have a part to play. And it's not just to affirm, yes, pastor, you're right. The the church of God needs to be properly ordered. But you have to do your part to come in line with God's word. Otherwise, there'll be little parking lot committees that happen or Facebook conversations that happen that undermine the unity of the church. And we all know this is true. Number two, how are we working as a church to teach and uphold God's house rules within our fellowship. Whether you come to a prayer meeting or you come to a Wednesday night discipleship group of like seven guys, or you go to a home group or you go to a fellowship ministry, whatever it is, or you come to worship or you go to Sunday school, our commitment is to properly teach and instruct God's people to disciple God's people in God's Word. We're not trying to be provocative for the sake of being provocative, but there are plenty of little places where we could poke and and we'll see that God's Word is confronting ideas within our culture. And those ideas keep creeping in. So how are we, how are you, 
within the church, teaching and upholding God's house rules within the fellowship? How are our ministries committed to promoting the stewardship from God that is by faith? That's our commitment. And you hold us accountable to that. Yes, you hold us accountable to that. This is what we're here to do. How are we establishing and maintaining God's revealed house rules? And this is not just a question for us as elders. It's a question for all who are in leadership, all of us who sit with people and open our mouths and open God's word. How are we as a church working to teach and uphold God's rules within our fellowship? And then three, third, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you experienced the power of God in the gospel? Have you come alive to the truth that you need a Savior and that you need to turn from your sin to embrace Jesus with the empty hands of faith? And the reason I say that is I don't assume that everyone in this room has truly been born again. I don't assume that everyone in this room has come in with a genuine heart of love for Christ because they rightly understand it. There are plenty of opportunities for us to just kind of skate around the issues and to maintain some form of religious obedience. And we put that mask on and we come in and we act like everything is fine. And yeah, I agree with you guys. That's not the question. The question is, have you been born again? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you realized that you have a heart of sin and the only hope you have for an eternity with God, the only hope you have for the forgiveness of those sins is to turn from your self-salvation mission and embrace Christ fully and completely. Because that's what is going to be required for us to be the kind of church that God has called us to be. We can't save ourselves, and we can't hide. You can hide from me. You can't hide from God. And eventually, the fruit of your life will display itself. You cannot cleanse your own heart of sin. That's God's work. You can't do this on your own, but you can cry out for it. So if you've been convicted, if you're here with that in mind, yes, maybe I do need to be born again. Yes, maybe I have been playing a game. Then I want to instruct you to go back to what I said earlier about David. When David was confronted with his sin, he recognized, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own, God. I need you to create in me a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within me. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you about the gospel more clearly, but that's where it starts. You crying out to the Lord, confessing your sin, and asking him to give you that clean heart and renewed spirit. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us all. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word does in us. Thank you for the promise that we have in your word that you will allow it to accomplish its purpose, your purpose for it in our lives. It will not return void. And so I pray that even now you would move among us, that you would convict our hearts, whether, whether it's a, a contention that we have between a, a sister and another sister or a brother and a sister or a husband and a wife. Maybe there's something going on in our hearts and in our lives that we've just kept hidden and yet you have pressed on that through the preaching of your word today. Lord, help us to make it right. Help us to humble ourselves and to seek to love one another, to do what the scriptures command us to do, to be reconciled. And for those among us who don't know you, who've been playing that game and just thought this was normal religion, Lord, I pray that today you would make clear their need of Christ and that the gospel would bear fruit in their hearts. 
And Lord, help us as a church to be committed to the house rules, not for the sake of being provocative within our culture, but for the sake of being faithful to you. Give us that desire for faithfulness, that hunger for it, and let us be unified by it and accomplish your purpose in us through that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We ask your blessing over us as we respond to your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.